Welcome to Life Beat, right to Life of Michigan's bi-weekly podcast going in-depth on pro-life news and information. I'm your host, Chris Gast, RLM's Director of Communication and Education. Very happy Friday, everybody. Well, the election. That's the big deal. Uh, and it was a big deal. It, incredibly big deal. I can't stress that enough. Today would have been a very different podcast had Hillary Clinton won the election. Had Hillary Clinton won the election, I would have been reviewing the election results, as we will in just a second, um, go through a couple big important things, but I would have been talking about the importance of the next Supreme Court nomination, and would Republicans consider not nominating someone for four years, or uh, how would the new administration create a budget crisis in order to uh, legalize tax-funded abortions, or would they just decide that they were going to do it, and then how would the court respond to that? Um, What about all our other regulations, parental consent? uh, You know, it would have been a long, depressing laundry list of things we need to be on defense for. And instead, Donald Trump won the election and won the state of Michigan. And now we're going to be talking about What happens when Roe v. Wade's overturned? The difference between those two is maybe a sad reflection on the state of American politics, but those were the stakes involved, and that's the message that we tried to give to people throughout the election season, and thankfully, pro-lifers came through, especially in the state of Michigan, where the margin of victory was only about three, uh, 13,000 votes. We'll get a final uh, tally on that when the Board of Canvassers meets soon to certify the election results. But uh, that and the very razor-thin margin in, in Pennsylvania is what made the difference between these two incredibly different roads. Now, winning Michigan is a, is a great... Uh, I don't want to say a great surprise, but uh, not how it was expected to go, obviously. And it's important to understand that a lot of uh, we as people and voters look at the media polls, and the media polls are generally somewhat accurate. Of course, they have you know three or four percent margin of errors, which in this case was the difference between Trump winning and losing. Um, but it's important to note that campaigns also have internal polls. They do their own polling that we as voters do not get to see. And we saw at the end here in the state of Michigan that Donald Trump and his uh, vice president, Mike Pence, and the other campaign surrogates were hitting the state unbelievably hard. I've never seen anything like this in, in my you know memory uh, since I was a kid. Um how many candidates were in here and I'm 32 so I've seen quite a few presidential elections the first one that I was paying attention to sort of uh, 92 George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and uh, how they came to Michigan at the end was astounding and so even though the polls indicated it seemed to be out of reach 
you could tell that by the attention that they were giving that Michigan was definitely in play. And it flipped. How'd it flip? Well, uh, if you look at the votes, um, the Northern Michigan was a big, decisive uh, Northern Michigan and Macomb counties, sort of your Reagan Democrats who tend to be a little bit more uh, conservative but would vote for the Democratic Party on um, some important economic issues. And those voters really seem to flip in the state to Trump. It's very funny. One of our resource center managers in the in the Downriver area of uh, Detroit, which is which is not Macomb County, but south of there, said it was amazing seeing the amount of Trump support in her area, which typically goes Democratic. And her she was predicting from the beginning that. Uh, Chris McDonald, our staff person down there, is predicting a Trump win, and uh, she won. She won the bet. We didn't really have a bet in the office, but she was right on the money. Those voters came home for Trump, and that's why he won. So where does that leave us now? Well, as I said earlier, Roe v. Wade is on the chopping block here, and that's going to be our big focus moving forward. With another Supreme Court justice on the court to fill Antonin Scalia, and here's a really critical point, is the nominee has to be a good nominee. Just because the Republicans control the Senate and there's a Republican in the White House does not mean that that nominee will be a good one. If you look at, uh, you know, Reagan was a very pro-life president. He, uh, like Donald Trump, started off his career pro-choice as governor of California. He was the one that legalized abortion. He came to regret it and became an outspoken pro-life president. Uh, He wrote a short little booklet on it, uh, which was quite unprecedented. You know, we we have a list of pro-life quotes. There's so many great ones from Ronald Reagan, humanizing the unborn about the importance of the issue. But he did not come through in the Supreme Court. He really didn't. His nominees upheld Roe v. Wade in 1992, uh, the last time that we thought that may be overturned in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Now, it wasn't total loss because it really enabled a lot of the legislation that the pro-life movement has been focusing on since then, but that was an opportunity that was missed. And in those 24 years since Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that's you know, more than 24 million lives lost. I mean, that's the stakes here. And the importance of the nominee is very critical. The list that Trump floated during uh, the campaign uh, was a very good list. And, you know, the the nominees don't have to be, you know, pro-life warriors that show up for the March for Life in 45 below zero weather every year. They simply need to recognize that abortion is not in the Constitution. It just isn't. It's not mentioned anywhere. It's not in the, you know, the idea that the emanations of the penumbra is where you can find a a right to abortion via the right to privacy in in the Constitution. is just bunk. And this is the important point. You know, we live in a democratic society. No voter, no member of Congress, no state legislature at any point in the Constitution's history, ever put a provision in there thinking that it would have anything to do with abortion. 
up until 1973 when the court just decided it was in there. So we need justices who will recognize that it's not in there. Abortion, like any other law, you know, uh, laws on theft, rape, murder, anything like that, is the responsibility of states to set. And then obviously, down the road, we want a constitutional amendment as pro-lifers that permanently protects the, as permanently as you can with a constitutional amendment, uh, that protects the unborn. But in the in the immediate, short, medium-term future, overturning Roe v. Wade will be our biggest uh, focus. And right now, uh, that extra justice will put it back, the court back to a 4-4-1 split, where you have uh, four in favor of abortion, no matter what the cost, uh, four who are, we assume, would overturn Roe v. Wade based on what they've said, their past record, their past rulings, and then Anthony Kennedy is the perennial swing vote, who had a very bad decision in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt a couple of months ago about abortion clinic regulations. Now, there's three other justices, including Kennedy, who are uh, 78 or older, and so all we need is one of those justices to step down, retire, uh, another appointment, and then we theoretically should have a 5-4 split to overturn Roe. That's what we're looking for. What would happen when we turn over to, uh, when we overturn Roe v. Wade? It would go back to the states. In Michigan, as we, we've said and we try to educate people at every turn, uh, we have a state law that was supported by Michigan voters 60 to 40 in 1972 that bans abortion uh, completely except for the life of the mother. That's our final goal as a pro-life movement, uh, and we have that in place in Michigan ready to go if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Now, what is, will that save every all 25,000 lives in the state of Michigan? Uh, no. Um, Probably not. Some of those women could travel to other states in the Union. Uh, it'll be a patchwork of different states have different laws. Uh, they'll definitely uh, be a challenge to our state's law once again if Roe v. Wade were overturned. I can't see a Planned Parenthood or another pro-abortion group just letting it stand without trying to weaken it in some way. Um, it'll be a kind of a fluid and messy situation, uh, but that's fine because for the first time ever, uh, well, first time since 1973, voters will have a voice. And that's what our American system is based on, that our voters select representatives who make these laws. If something's to be put in the Constitution, uh, it has to go through Congress two-thirds or uh, three-quarters of state legislatures, has to be approved by those state legislatures who are selected by the voters. And it's something that they wanted to put in the Constitution. We do not live in a country where five justices can make decrees that are unassailable, that change constitutions, that change and rewrites the basic fabric of our society and our social contract. That's what we've lived under for the last 44 years. And the American people are so used to it, it's going to be critical in the days ahead to educate them on that. Now, once uh, besides Roe v. Wade, there's a couple other important pro-life opportunities that the election can now afford us. Uh, one, executive orders immediately off the bat. President Trump can reinstitute the Mexico City policy, which prevents the United States from funding and promoting abortion overseas, which uh, we do a lot of. Western countries often 
will try to impose their views on abortion on other countries, uh, either dissidents in Western, uh, for example, Ireland and Poland. The UN will pressure them. Other countries in Africa and South America will be consistently pressured. Um, countries like the Philippines, uh, China, we've funded, helped promote their one child, now two child policy through the United Nations uh, Population Fund and our money, and that can be put to an immediate stop on day one. However long it takes for Donald Trump to type that executive order up and put it in. Uh, another couple possibilities. Of course, you know, uh, it'll take some time before we get another justice who might retire, and who knows, they might last another four years. They might all want to hold on to their spots if they can, um, just to make sure that uh, abortion stays legal, uh, because that's the only thing sustaining Roe v. Wade is the personal prejudices of five justices and their own views on abortion, substituting it for that of the Constitution, the people, and our elected representatives. So in that time, uh, we can also defund Planned Parenthood. Now, typically in the past, uh, before President Obama, we would have a regular budget cycle. Uh, the budget was due in October. Uh, we, you know, they'd pass different bills for different uh, cabinet departments in the government. They'd bring the whole thing together. We'd pass a budget. In the Obama years, we've had this kind of strange zombie budget process where we pass continuing resolutions and we have all these fights about are we going to shut down the government, etc. Um, but now we have the votes to defund Planned Parenthood. Now, one critical point here, while the Republicans control the Senate 52 to 48, not all those 52 senators are 100% pro-life votes. So I went back and looked at how the votes stack up from last year, because there were several bills to defund Planned Parenthood, and uh, National Right to Life scored them. And if you look through the 100% pro-life voters, um, I think I added it up correctly. Right now, there's a 50-50 tie on defunding Planned Parenthood. And th that would be senators who were 100% votes last time or replacements that we're assuming, we're assuming will vote pro-life and vote to defund Planned Parenthood. So in that case, uh, Vice President Mike Pence would be the tie-breaking vote on uh, a budget that would defund Planned Parenthood. So we can't afford any pro-life senators to be sick that day, uh, to have some sort of health issue. Uh, any senators that go into a Trump administration will have to be replaced. Uh, so it's a fluid situation. And, you know, it could break. There are a couple people who voted to defund Planned Parenthood at certain points, but not others. Uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia is one who is a Democrat. Uh, I think Lisa Murkowski in Alaska voted uh, to defund Planned Parenthood at one point, but not another. Uh, so it'll be a very fluid situation, um, and hopefully those cards line up, but that can be something that we can do. And it's important to note that not all the money that Planned Parenthood gets, not all that $500-plus dollars are from the federal government. They get state money, uh, they get federal pass-through money, uh, you know, states, big states like California fund taxpayer-funded uh, abortions. And so, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood won't, won't be the end of Planned Parenthood, but for the first time, they'll have to rely on their own, their own donors, uh, their own program services to get by. 
and one critical point on that, you know, Planned Parenthood, say, before the um, tenure of their president, Cecile Richards, did not get nearly as much federal funding, and they served more clients. And so they made a conscious choice to serve less clients and depend uh, more on taxpayer dollars. So they really put themselves into the situation where they rely on pro-abortion elected officials to operate as an organization. And so uh, if you happen to be listening to this podcast and maybe you're just listening to it because you don't like us and you want to see what we're saying, um, you know, Planned Parenthood really only has itself to blame. They spend tens of millions of dollars lobbying, affecting elections, and they created the situation for themselves. And they're doing it while serving less clients. You know, they get this extra money and they don't actually expand their services except for abortion. And so that's really their own fault here. And so that'll be a big fight coming up. Uh, one other kind of piece of priority legislation that could see some action in the in the meantime, theoretically, before we get a chance to overturn Roe v. Wade, would be a late-term abortion ban. Um Bans after 20 weeks based on the idea that a child can feel pain. Uh, or in this state, we're pursuing a ban on dismemberment abortions, which is the big late-term abortion procedure. Uh, those will have a chance to pass. The vote should be there. Uh, Trump has said uh, he would support that. He said he would defund Planned Parenthood as long as they provide continue providing abortions, which is what Planned Parenthood does now. They are Abortion Inc. Um, I really doubt that they would sacrifice their abortion services for their other client services. So those are all priorities that we can do in the next few years and pass. And even if we still have Anthony Kennedy on there and it's a 4-4 and 1 situation in the Supreme Court, that late-term abortion ban or the dismemberment abortion ban could potentially survive a court challenge. So that's something that we can do immediately that will have a life-saving impact. What are our challenges moving forward? Well, I think I covered a couple uh, challenges that we're facing just in how we work out um, our agenda moving forward. You know, we have to get good nominees. We have to have the right votes in order to get the Planned Parenthood defunded. Uh, There'll be a court challenge on other pieces of pro-life legislation that'll still have to survive. Um, So there's some challenges. There's going to be one big challenge moving forward, and that is... Uh, there's a story that we just found this week that the FDA has sort of given its blessing for an experiment uh, to try mail-order abortions. Now, what these are are uh, kind of when we were talking about telemedicine abortions a few years ago, uh, women would come into a clinic, a doctor would get them on the video and say, do you want to have an abortion, and kind of give a cursory look over their medical information, push a button, the doctor would push a button on their end, a cash register would pop open with abortion pills, and the woman would take the RU486 home and have a medical abortion. Um, Well, now, instead of having a uh, telemedicine um, example of the woman having to be in the office to get the abortion pills uh, in three states, I believe... No, I'm mistaken. It's four states. Hawaii, New York, Oregon, and Washington are experimenting with these mail-order abortions. 
and uh, it's being done elsewhere, uh, Australia and uh, British Columbia and Canada. Um, what this does for abortion clinics is it's really cheap and easy for them. It's sold as being convenient for women, but medical abortions are not convenient for women when you really think about it. In a surgical abortion, the woman goes in, uh, the procedure lasts a few minutes, they obviously go to you know recovery, it's not a pretty process, but then they go home. In a RE486 abortion, they just go home, and especially in a mail-order abortion, they're getting abortion bills delivered from their mailman. And the process is not pretty. Even pro-abortion writers, and I believe we talked about this in the podcast before, uh, an RE486 abortion is painful, messy, literally. Um, A lot of women will pass their unborn child in the toilet. They'll have to see the body themselves. Um, They might be at home alone. And it has a high failure rate, I believe uh, 5% for RE46. So 1 in 20 women is going to have to go back and have a surgical abortion at an abortion clinic. And so abortion clinics, it's really not about the convenience of the woman. It's about being cheap and easy for them. And so that's going to be a challenge moving forward as they try to go out of their way to avoid clinic regulations. Uh, They're always trying to cut corners, trying to make it easier and less responsibility on them. And so that's going to be a big challenge for us moving forward. So just to close, and uh, we know we went a little bit long, but that was a truly momentous election. And hopefully we believe really the turning point in the pro-life movement. So I just want to thank you. Uh, If you did anything, if you voted, if you went door to door, if you did phone calls, if you were posting on social media, talking with your uh, friends and family, uh, if you made an impact, you know, it was important. The margin of victory in Michigan was just uh, 13,000 votes. And so you look at the amount of voter contacts that we made we pro-lifers made the difference in Michigan. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Join us again in three weeks on December 9 for our next podcast where we can get back to more educational topics. Uh, Although obviously when we have any developments legislatively or from our uh, new presidential administration, we'll dive into those. Uh, The lame duck session is coming up in the Michigan legislature, so we'll have the opportunity to pass some pro-life bills. We'll cover all that as we get to it. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you in three.